like to invite you to open your Bibles this morning to Luke's Gospel, Luke 4.31. Luke 4.31. We're coming to the end of that final section of chapter 4. And we started it last week, the section that shows what it really is can only be described as the astonishing authority and power of Jesus Christ. His astonishing authority and power that is on display here by his rebuking and casting out a demon, his, his healing power. It's just absolutely phenomenal. We're going to begin this morning by reading the text starting in Luke 41 all the way to the end of the chapter. And Jesus went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. They were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. And in the synagogue there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon. He cried out with a loud voice, Ah, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent. Come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. And they were all amazed and said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. Reports about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. And he arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. Now, Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever, and they appealed to him on her behalf. And he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her, and immediately she rose and began to serve them. Now, when the sun was setting, all who those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many, crying, You are the Son of God! But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak, because they knew that he was the Christ. And when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place. And the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well. For I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. As you can see by reading the text this second time, on two weeks in a row we've read that whole text, all this narrative really takes place on a single day. Jesus was teaching them on the Sabbath day in a synagogue in Capernaum. And his teaching there, as we saw, was interrupted by a demoniac. Jesus, not even phased by it, he just stopped, silenced the demons, sent it away. That astonishing display of authority and power was like a shockwave that hit that synagogue, hit Capernaum, and it traveled through the entire village in a day, but it also eventually spread to the whole surrounding region. And as that word was getting out around the village that day, Jesus went to Simon Peter's house for dinner, and there he healed Simon's mother-in-law. As we just read, after he healed her later that evening, there was a multitude of people that showed up. They came to Jesus with all kinds of sickness and suffering. He came with very serious physical needs. He healed them. Once again, I just want to remind you, I don't want us to lose sight 
of what is written earlier in the chapter, that this here is a graphic portrayal of Jesus on mission. This is Jesus' mission. He came to seek and save the lost. He came to heal and to forgive. Physical healing, spiritual healing as well. He came to conquer the curse, to release the captives, and to set them free. And that is a mission that, as we saw earlier when He was in Nazareth, that's the mission that Jesus outlined there in Nazareth in His hometown back in verses 18 and 19. It says there, He has anointed Me to proclaim good news to the poor. Jesus again reading from Isaiah. He says, He has anointed Me. God has anointed Me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent Me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. Luke wants us to see that here. He wants us to see the literal, physical implications of that passage in Isaiah worked out in the ministry of Jesus on earth. There are more profound spiritual implications as well. We're going to revisit that theme. But first, Luke wants us to know that this is not an empty promise made from God in Isaiah. It's not an empty promise that Jesus quotes there. It's not some kind of pie in the sky and the sweet by and by kind of a pipe dream. This is real life. This is flesh and blood healing of real, actual diseases, things that cause death. We need to see here, Luke wants us to see here, that Jesus possesses that authority. He has that kind of power. Not only that, not only is He able, but He is willing to heal people. He's willing to set them free. We need to see that if He could do this kind of healing in the physical realm, that's going to be an aid to our weak faith to help us to believe that He can set us free spiritually as well. If He can take care of the symptom, He can take care of the cause as well. If He can heal the physical symptoms, well, perhaps He has the will and the power to heal the spiritual disease that causes it all, right? After all, what good? What good is the physical healing of temporary illnesses and diseases when we face the power and the permanency of death? Every single one of these people who was healed that day all died eventually. Death is still the final equalizer. And we're all going to face that dark and dreadful day. We need to know that our Savior has all power and all authority. He can conquer death. We get a good indication of that. that He's not only able, but willing to do so from passages like this one before us. And that's what Luke wants us to see. Total salvation. That's what our God promises. That's what our Lord and Savior delivers and provides. Having said that, I don't want in any way, even as I talk about a deeper spiritual problem of sin and and death that needs to be overcome, I don't want in any way to diminish the very real nature of physical suffering that all of us face in this fallen world. Sickness and suffering, it's an extremely distressing reality that we all live with. It's not just the tremendous pain of physical conditions and afflictions, but also there are all the attendant pressures and stresses. 
all the inconveniences of sicknesses and things that we have to do to attend to those who are sick. There are all the anxieties and the worries that we all face. With the increased access to medical care, insurance plans, pharmacies, prescriptions, drugs, WebMD, and everything else you can answer by Googling it for yourself on the internet, and you can know how to self-diagnose, and you can bring that into your doctor and help him do his job, right? I'm sure they love that. But with all this access that we have today to medical facts and tips and helps, I really wonder how all this hurry and worry to save our physical bodies, how much it's actually helping us. Is it really improving our quality of life? What good is living when you're always worried about dying? How can you enjoy food when you're always thinking about what's coming to kill you in every single bite? I don't know if you, anybody you have people like this around you, always reminding you of every bite with calories and every carcinogen and every cholesterol and every salt intake. I just want to eat the burger. Let me alone and enjoy my sinful, deadly stuff, okay? But our minds can be tempted to distraction by this constant attention to the condition of our physical bodies. We need to acknowledge though the significant advances in medicine that have contributed to our individual and public health, they're not small by any measure. They're vast. When's the last time you actually heard of someone dying of tuberculosis or the rheumatic fever? It's been a long time, hasn't it? Discovery of vaccines, development of antibiotics, have helped to contain those diseases, making incidents of death very rare. But those, you need to understand, and I know that some of you with, with grayer hair, you remember a time when those took loved ones, affected your family. My grandmother had a brother die of diabetes, and she herself had tuberculosis, and it affected the whole family. When she was down with TB and my mom had to raise the kids, it's a very serious issue. All of these diseases that are past tense for us, they were leading causes of death not very long ago, especially among children. It would probably have been difficult to find any family, even as much as 50 years ago, that had not been visited by some serious, even life-threatening illness. Today, though, through immunizations, through regular doctor checkups, through all kinds of prescriptions and ways of healthy living, it's an imperfect but it is a fairly effective medical system. We have pharmaceuticals, we have over-the-counter drugs, we have other things that are prescribed, and it's hard to find these days people who are suffering from tuberculosis, rheumatic fever, uh, many other dangerous diseases. We have tetanus and rabies and polio, yellow fever, whooping cough, smallpox, all the rest. Those are forgotten worries in some senses, right? In just a hundred years, it's amazing to see what has happened. Life expectancy worldwide has increased by 30 years. Life expectancy used to be around 40 years of age at the beginning of the 20th century. Now it's about 70 years of age, and that's worldwide. That's astounding. People seem to be living longer, healthier lives. And yet, let's never forget, people are still dying, right? 
deadly diseases remain. Serious medical conditions continue to plague us. We've learned somehow in this process of medical advancement in technology and science, we've learned to trust this kind of ethereal, nebulous realm we call science. It points for us the way to salvation, to discover the fountain of youth, lead us all to it that we can drink freely and fully. And as many advances as we've been granted by God in the area of medicine, we're grateful for every single one of them. But sometimes I wonder if modern scientific advancement has become a false hope for us. A mirage that promises healing but ultimately cannot deliver what it promises. They say the death rate is still 100%. I'm inclined to believe them. That hasn't changed. But what has changed is our cultural perception of death. We either ignore it altogether or else we believe that we can find the cure for it and save ourselves by our science. If you talk with people in this country, you find many people who feel fairly in control of their lives. They believe they have the power to control their own destiny. The more technology we add to our lives, the more smartphones we put into our hands and into our pockets, we feel that we can chart our own course. We can solve it all. The greater our sense of control, the greater our sense of personal sovereignty, autonomy, self-mastery, the stronger we have self-belief. Given enough time, science will eventually provide us with the answers to fix any problem and overcome any obstacle that we have. And that's why I like to call the God of the Western world an idol called progress. We bow at the idol of progress in our culture, in our society. Many people worship the God of progress today. It's a secular God, but it's one that many religious people bow before as well. Progress has its temples in the universities and research facilities and the medical schools. Progress has its prophets who are busy working in the research labs. They're experts in biology and chemistry and statistics, and they all crunch all that data for the biomedical engineers and all the priests and the practitioners. Progress has its priests as well. They bring that prophetic word, those messages to the public forum. They introduce the prophetic findings to the culture, making them understood on a popular level. The priests sell everything from pharmaceuticals to insurance to biomedical appliances to healthcare packages. And by this constant and incessant and aggressive promotion, they build, they maintain, and perpetuate this medical infrastructure that we've all come to believe that we can never live without. Progress employs its practitioners as well. The doctors and nurses and pharmacists. These are the people who touch people's lives at the practical level at the day-to-day realities of normal life. And it's especially the practitioners who see most clearly, most poignantly, most practically, the effects of worshiping the God of progress at the practical level. Some of them, to be sure, are just happy to have a job. They've got a family to feed as well. And they are happy that there's a huge medical infrastructure in our society that employs so many people 
They're happy to see the system perpetuate itself because people, after all, are always going to be sick. They're always going to be worried about being sick, so they're always going to need doctors and nurses and hospitals. That's just a fact of life. Some people have accepted that reality. They're just happy to make a living from it. It's a good thing. It's part of the grace of God. There are other people in that system who truly lament the way the system doesn't serve people well. It's a system that has been reported on numerous times. My brother is a a journalist for a a very prodigious and prominent journalism company, a nonprofit organization, and he does medical journalism. And he's exposed a number of these things that are kind of the underbelly of the system. And there are many people writing articles on this. This has become a system of consumer demand, high expectation on the consumer's part, but also easy litigation. Very easy to sue. And so because of the lawsuits, there are high insurances. And they protect this doctors and practitioners from medical malpractice lawsuits. This legal, medical, pharmaceutical infrastructure that we've all come to accept has become, for many of these practitioners, a tyrannical overlord. The doctors feel safer treating symptoms rather than finding and treating causes business after all. They have mouths to feed as well. Look, it's an imperfect system. Many of the things in the system are a grace from God. and We may feel like we've come a long, long way since first century flus and fevers, but it's only an illusion. We still suffer physically. We still worry we still have high anxiety over sickness and disease. We still fear death. The God of progress can create and promote the illusion of conquering death, but it can never deliver on that promise. Seems like every year or two, right? There's a new virus that we hear about that's ready to visit us through tiny little mosquitoes landing on our body. Every time we see them land, we're like, is that Zika? Is that West Nile? What am I going to get this time? Google probably has a metric to track and report on the spike of those frantic searches. What do I do if I, how do I avoid, what do I, what are the symptoms? These things get very personal, don't they? And all of a sudden, too, you hear those terrifying words from the doctor, it's cancer. All of a sudden, it comes home to you. Breast cancer, prostate cancer, colon cancer, all this stress-inducing, at the very least, even terrifying for some who are prone to worry and fear. And when that news comes, in an instant, your life has changed. There's a new normal you need to face in your life. You need to talk about subjects that you are not even trained for. Things like metastasizing. What is, what is that? I've got to look it up. Figure out what's wrong with me. Figure out what's going on. We need to find out whether surgery is necessary or optional. How am I going to know that? I trust people that are better equipped than I. I need to know whether I'm going to have radiation or chemotherapy or even both. I need to know if I have to have something cut off or whatever. Listen, physical suffering is such a stubborn reality, is it not? No matter what modern science does to fight sickness and disease, to mitigate for us the effects of the curse, I'm afraid that the curse is here to stay. And it will not be removed until we are finally freed by Jesus Christ when He returns and puts an end to all of this. He conquered it in the cross. It will not be consummated fully until He returns again. The fact of sickness and illness and disease, it remains. 
And death still stands as a grim and foreboding reaper, nameless, faceless, dark and brooding, and ready to visit us one day. We cannot escape it. As a pastor, I see all of this up close and personal. I see the pain and suffering. I see the fear and the worry in people's eyes. And it's not just from those who are actually afflicted with the condition. It's also from the anxious family and the friends as well. They endure another form of suffering altogether, don't they? It's all sourced in the sickness and disease that comes from the curse. Of all the gifts from the apostolic age that I wish were still operative and I would love to have right now, it would be the gift of healing. I would love to walk through the Northern Colorado Medical Center and literally empty that place. Makes you wonder why those who claim to have the gift of healing don't do that. To alleviate the suffering of hurting people. To deliver them from the pain of sickness and illness and disease and and all other kinds of physical and mental maladies. To remove the cause of worry and fear that's suffered by friends and loved ones. To take away all their cause for sorrow and dread. Wouldn't that be wonderful? A touch to get rid of it all. To deliver people like Jesus did this day in Capernaum. It's no wonder that texts like the one in front of us this morning, it's no wonder that these kind of texts have been the inspiration of so many poems and hymns, so much artwork depicting Jesus, the great physician, delivering people, suffering people from their afflictions. One of them is actually entitled The Great Physician, a hymn written by William Hunter in 1859. First stanza says, The great physician now is near. The sympathizing Jesus. He speaks the drooping heart to cheer. Oh, hear the voice of Jesus. That's a voice we want to hear right now as we work our way through the text. Let's take a closer look at these verses, starting in verse 38. To hear this voice of Jesus and see His healing power at work. This is Point one in your outline, Jesus the healer of the physical. Jesus the healer of the physical. We're looking at verses 38 to 40 here. And we see Jesus healing in a private home, the home of Simon Peter. And then we see him healing publicly as well. But let's set up the scene here first. It says there in verse 38 that he arose and he left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever, and they appealed to him on her behalf. We can stop there for a minute. Some of the commentators I read considered Capernaum, which sits at about 700 feet below sea level, very near to the water and all that. They noted the high rate of sickness and disease caused by this malarial environment there. Some saw this place as a, a cesspool of bacteria, kind of an incubator of viruses and various diseases. I couldn't find much on it from other sources and commentaries, but what we read in verse 40 seems to indicate that there was an awfully high rate of sickness in town. Many with various diseases came and brought them to Jesus later on. Jesus is going to have a long night of, ahead of healing all these people. Whatever the case, if it was the environment or just an affliction that came on the town, in any case, the sickness had visited Simon Peter's mother-in-law, 
As I said, it got personal. She may have been a widow living with Simon and his family. And I want to stop for a moment and say that, yes, Simon Peter had a mother-in-law, which means he was married. Yes, the one who would become the leading apostle of the twelve. He's the, you know, the impetuous one, the guy with the foot-shaped mouth. He's the guy that everybody else is thinking it, but he, he risks and says it. It just comes out of his mouth even before he can stop it. And he became the spokesman of the twelve. He became kind of the leader among leaders. And many, particularly today, Roman Catholics, they're surprised to find that Peter was married. The one that they look to as a prototype of, for the succession of Roman Catholic popes all of them claiming to be devoted to clerical celibacy, not having wives. As the vicar of Christ, they're to be separate from the affairs of the mundane human life and devoted to Christ alone. That's what they believe. History is filled with evidence to the contrary that many of these so-called clerically celibate popes were not celibate at all. Some of what you read is utter debauchery. But it's interesting that the one that they believe is the prototype of the papal office, Simon Peter, he had a mother-in-law. He was married. It was a fact that was so widely known in that day that Paul used him as an example in 1 Corinthians 9.5 of the rights that were enjoyed by the other apostles, the right of financial support, not only of the apostle, but of his believing wife as well. And Paul names just like Peter. So Jesus, he leaves the synagogue on this particular day after this experience with the demoniac, and he enters Simon's house. Simon, his brother Andrew, they had a fishing business. They seemed to be in partnership with the two sons of Zebedee, James and John. And let me just take a moment to describe the style of the house to you because it's going to help you picture what happened just a few hours later when the whole town shows up with its sick and needy. Simon's house wasn't far from the lake, just a short walk to the water's edge, uh, the seawall, the harbor that was there. And the house itself would have been according to one source, part of an insula complex, which means there were, there were several houses kind of grouped together and connected in like a square, like a block. And they would be closed. There would be an entrance at the front of it toward the street. So just imagine this kind of common courtyard outside Simon's front door. And it was a bustling hive of activity, especially following the Sabbath services at the synagogue as the women were busy making preparations to feed their hungry families. And inside Simon's home that day, lying down on a bed, sort of a pallet that was laid on the floor in the coolest place in the room, his feverish mother-in-law. Medical name for fever is pyrexia. Gets its name from the Greek word puritas, which is used right here in this text. And many commentators have noted a number of medical terms used here in the first century, which you would expect from the author Luke, who was a doctor. When you compare this account with the parallel accounts in Matthew and Mark, you can see the perspective of Luke as a beloved physician coming through the text. He's a first century physician. And as such, he has special appreciation for Jesus as the divine healer, as the great physician. Luke here, he notes the severity of the fever. Our English doesn't convey it as strongly as he wrote it. He uses the normal term for fever here, but he strengthens the term by adding this intensifying adjective, a great fever. It's the word megas. 
It's a mega fever. A severe fever. Very, very serious. So he doesn't tell us like the ESV says, just that she was ill with a high fever. That, that translation is a rather mild way of putting it. Luke here, he's not only using those terms of a mega fever, he also uses a verb that pictures her being pressed down by this fever. She's held captive. She's afflicted and confined. It's the imperfect tense too, so it means this fever had been attacking her for some time. It's unrelenting. It's getting worse. She's in the grip of this subduing, all-consuming fever, and everyone around her is clearly worried. Her life is literally hanging in the balance. Into verse 38, they come. They appeal to Jesus on her behalf, and, and why not? I mean, why wouldn't they ask Him? After all, they just witnessed in the synagogue, Simon and Andrew, along with Mark 1.29 tells us James and John were there as well. So these four disciples, they're all there. And they exercise some very practical reasoning. They say, look, if He can do the one, <laughs> well, then He can do the other as well. That's the simple, straightforward reasoning of these blue-collar fishermen. It's the kind of, kind of reasoning that kept the bills paid. Look, if that guy over there has the strength to pull that plow, to plow those fields, to handle those oxen and build that house, well, you know what? He's probably got the diligence and the strength to pull heavy fishing nets. I'll hire him. If he can do the one, he can do the other. It's simple, straightforward reasoning. It's the same thing here. If Jesus has the power to drive out a demon, a demon, a personality, a being that is holding this person in affliction, he can set that malevolent spirit fleeing. Maybe he has the power to deliver a woman who's suffering from a morally benign, non-willful virus. Viruses aren't personal. Bacteria are not trying to get at you like a demon is. It's sound thinking on their part, so they, they ask him. Now let's start working through the subpoints you can see in your outline there in your bulletin. First, notice how Jesus provides immediate relief. Immediate relief. Verse 39, he stood over her, rebuked the fever, and it left her, and immediately she arose and began to serve them. It's actually a, a parallel there between this healing here in Simon's house and then the exorcism that happened in the synagogue. There's a clear parallel between the problem presented, what Jesus did to accomplish it, and the immediate effect and that's led some commentators to believe that the fever here is demonically induced. After all, why would Jesus rebuke a non-personal entity like a fever? I don't believe that's actually the right way to see this. I don't believe there's a demon inspiring this fever. I believe it's just a fever. As the Creator, Jesus spoke non-personal entities into existence, did He not? Why would not He command anything else with a word as well? If He commanded earth, water, sky, along with everything that fills them, sun, moon, stars, birds, animals, everything, if He, if he command them into existence, why couldn't He command a bacteria, a virus, anything else? So from the greatest galaxies to the smallest atomic particles, He commands everything by the power of His Word, right? Colossians 1. Later in Luke's Gospel, in chapter 8, there was a severe storm that came up on the Sea of Galilee. Jesus is asleep in the back of the vessel. It's actually the best place to sleep in a ship, right? In the back. 
where it's pretty much, you know, not in motion. So his disciples awakened him and seeking his help in Luke 8, 24, it says that Jesus got up and he rebuked the wind, the raging waves. And what did they do? Obeyed. They ceased. There was a calm. That word for rebuke, it's the same word that's used here and it's the same word that's used to rebuke the demon. Jesus rebuked the demon, epitamao. He rebuked the fever, epitamao. And then he rebuked the wind and the waves, epitamao. Same word every single time. The demon stopped talking, departed from the man. The fever left Simon's mother-in-law. The wind stopped howling. The waves stopped raging. It was calm. That's the power of Jesus' command. Immediate deliverance from the demon. Immediate relief from the high fever. Immediate calm from the storm. What we're powerless to control, he commands with a word. That is the magnitude of his power. The immediacy of his effect. When we put this together with the parallel passages, this scene right here, when we put them together with the parallel passages in Matthew and Mark, we get the fuller picture here. Jesus entered into the room where Simon's mother-in-law was sleeping. And he stood over her as if to assess what he was seeing there. And then he commanded the fever and it left her. According to Matthew 8.15, Jesus touched her hand. As if to gently alert her to his presence and not to startle her. It's really a mark of tenderness that's pictured there in Matthew. And then according to Mark 1.31, he took her by the hand and lifted her up. Again, a picture of the consummate gentleman there. He's treating her with gentleness and dignity, bringing her up and raising her up. It's just an intimate scene here of our Lord's meekness. Incredible power, but under divine calm and control. The power to command this interloping fever. His word came in like a spiritual scalpel to precisely, skillfully cut out this fever and cast it away. And then the tender touch of humanity to touch her gently, to take her by the hand, to raise her to her feet again. That's how our Lord restores, isn't it? Can't we all attest to His gentleness but great power in our own lives as well? The text says, Immediately she rose and began to, sit, to serve them. It'd be a, an easy point to make an application here about the response of gratitude, that when, when Jesus heals us, we show our gratitude by serving Him immediately. And I like that point. And while it's true, while it's a good application for us, I believe it kind of misses the point here. I think there's something else going on that we need to see. Because the focus here is not so much just on Simon's mother-in-law. We don't even get her name. The focus here is on Jesus. It's all about Him. And Luke wants us to see and not to miss here the unparalleled authority and the absolute power of this very person. What Luke wants us to see here and what he himself as a physician finds so incredible is the immediacy of her healing, which is indicated by her return, not just to get rid of the fever, but to full strength. This is something that as a doctor, he is never, ever seen before. 
And he wants us to notice it. The healing of Simon's mother-in-law. She's flush, red, weak, sweating. You know how a fever is. It It just takes over. She's like a furnace, so hot, unable to be cooled. She's utterly debilitated in one moment, and in the very next moment, she's up and serving. Immediate, absolute, complete. That's how he cures. Folks, this doesn't happen. This is a medical wonder. When the body has a fever, and you all understand this, the body temperature is elevated because it's fighting a virus or a harmful bacteria. That's what God does. He causes our body to turn into basically an oven and cook it out. Our body generates a protein called pyrogen, again related to this fever word here in the Greek, and that increases the synthesis of a compound called prostaglandin in the hypothalamus there in the brain. And it raises the body's temperature to fight the viruses and bacteria that cause infections. When the temperature goes up in us, it generally tends to stay up until that fever is dead. And then it doesn't come down quickly. It doesn't come down immediately. Our bodies, like I said, turn into ovens. They kind of cook away the harmful stuff. They even burn away toxins and stimulate that immune system to overcome rescue us when the body's starting to lose the fight though like it was here it overcooks and the fever becomes what what was intended for our healing and our deliverance becomes a threat starts to become dangerous for our brain high fever is dehydrating and that's dangerous for the body eventually the high temperature cooking a brain can can lead to hallucinations can lead to seizures can eventually lead to death So to go from this severe, unrelenting fever in one moment and jump immediately to serving everyone in the next moment, folks, the body doesn't cool down that quickly. The energy doesn't return that fast. The brain doesn't recover that quickly. When it says in verse 39 that she arose and began to serve them, listen, we're not talking about fixing a couple tuna fish sandwiches and scooping up some potato salad. This is Middle Eastern hospitality. That puts Western hospitality to shame by the way i know some of you are really good at that but listen this is something we in america don't understand real well how the rest of the world serves the people that it receives as guests if you've been the recipient of this kind of hospitality if you've even read about it or heard about it you know that this kind of hospitality is one of the most useful one of the most noble endeavors to show honor to guests to take care of their physical needs and to put them at ease facilitating relationships and good fellowship. I realize that out in a, here in the West, pioneer country, we're all used to being pretty independent. The rest of the world kind of lives together. And I think it's how we're to do church too. Together, life on life, sharing our homes and bringing people in and getting into other people's homes as well. And people in other parts of the world, they get this. Life is about relationships. It's about fellowship. It's not about getting stuff. It's not about entertaining stuff. Life is about people. I was once talking with a man named Nabil Costa. He's the executive director for the Lebanese Society for Educational and Social Development. That's a big, highfalutin title that gets him access to do things in his country that he normally wouldn't be able to do. He's a native of Lebanon, and he's traveled the world. This man has been everywhere. He's seen everything. He's done everything. He's got so many frequent flyer miles. He could probably take us all on trips all around the world on his frequent flyer miles. I once asked him, of all the places you've seen, what's your favorite? 
And he said, home with family. He said, the place isn't important. It's all about the people. Look, hospitality, serving people, bringing them into your home, getting in other people's homes, sharing life like this, hospitality acknowledges this truth. Hospitality facilitates these relationships. The cultures of the Middle East understand that because they are connected historically by line, by continuity with ancient ways of thinking. And that's something that we Americans, as such a young country, and we Coloradans out here on what we call in our theology in the open range, we're out here on the open range, right? We're, we're used to circling the wagons and shooting at the bad guys and the, on the Indians and stuff. We want to keep people away. We came out here to get away from people, historically. But listen, we need to learn this from our Middle Eastern and, and Chinese and African brothers and sisters in Christ. Hospitality is so important look back on our lives from the clear perspective that's provided by the hindsight of old age and to rejoice that we worked hard to develop and facilitate relationships to show hospitality to one another we will never ever regret that we will regret too much time at work we will regret too much time getting stuff taking vacations and doing all the rest of the things that americans do but we will never regret a lot of time built into relationships built into people. That's a true investment. This kind of hospitality is a daily, practical reality in the first century Middle Eastern context. Showing hospitality was absolutely rewarding. But it was also energy-sapping stuff. It was a sacrifice. And that's why all the more to see this, to, for Peter's mother-in-law to go flat on her back with a deadly fever, and all of a sudden to serving a houseful of guests. Look, I don't know all the physiology involved, but when you stop to think about this, this is nothing short of a staggering recovery. It was immediate. It was absolute. It was complete. That's how Jesus healed. Not like the faith healers we see on television, the frauds who are bilking the foolish and the naive out of millions of dollars and billions of dollars. Look, Jesus didn't do that at all. He didn't charge. He just provided immediate and complete relief. Second sub-point in your outline to mark Jesus' healing. Jesus provides comprehensive healing. Comprehensive healing. When Jesus healed people physically, you're going to see this all throughout the Gospels, that He not only heals immediately, completely, but He heals comprehensively. His healing is not confined to subjective sensations like sore backs, lower back pain, fibromyalgia, headaches, and things like that. It's not an ill-defined set of symptoms where temporary relief comes and goes. Jesus healed all kinds of known and recognized diseases. And not only that, but He healed them all publicly. His healings were wide open to public verification and validation. Notice in verse 40 and 41, when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many, crying, You are the Son of God. Word had gotten around town, definitely about what had happened in the synagogue that morning, but probably also about the healing of Simon's mother in law. You know how small villages are, right? 
one of the proverbial realities of small town life is called small town gossip, right? We all know that word spread from house to house here. Excitedly talking about this real exorcist, a real healer in their midst. That opening line there in verse 40, when the sun was setting, that's not merely to tell us the time of day there. That tells us that the people, they waited until after the Sabbath was over. Sabbath lasted from Friday at sunset to Saturday at sunset, so the people waited until the Sabbath was over, lest they violate the Sabbath or lest they be perceived as violating the Sabbath. And Luke tells us when he says here that all with various diseases, and then speaks of him healing, touching every single one of them, he's given a picture of what actually happened there. The entire city of Capernaum descended on Simon's house, just packed into the courtyard right outside his front door spilled out onto the public streets. His home was basically turned into like, a, like an infirmary on war day, right? Like a makeshift emergency room, like a triage center. People were bringing their loved ones, all manner of sickness and disease, including those that had demons. They came there for healing. Look, it's comprehensive. Limitless efficacy. That's what Luke wants us to see here about Jesus. Like no physician who has ever lived, Jesus was able to treat every single infirmity, every single disease. His ability to cure was absolutely comprehensive. Nothing beyond His power to heal. And virtually here, if not literally, eradicated all sickness and disease from Capernaum in a single night. And again, just imagine having that ability to walk into the northern Colorado Medical Center and eliminated all. Amazing power he possessed, still possesses, to exercise at the will of the Father. One more sub-point to mention, very important one here, immediate relief, comprehensive healing, and thirdly, Jesus provides impeccable care. Impeccable care. You might wonder, and validly ask the question, um, if Jesus had the power to command the fever away from Simon Peter's mother-in-law, why didn't he do the same thing with all these people that came? It's a good question. He could have simply walked outside, see all the sick and the infirm gathering around, and he could have maybe got up on the rooftop, waved his hand over Capernaum and said, sickness, be gone. Then go downstairs, crawl into bed, and go to good night's rest. No, instead he's up all night. He's moving from case to case. Kind of like an army medic on a battlefield. He's moving from victim to victim, tending to each one, touching every single person with his hands. Why? Listen, Jesus didn't need to speak a word of rebuke, did he? He didn't need to touch anybody. He didn't use, need to use any other means at all. He simply thought the thought. He could have cast out the demons, healed the sick, calmed storms, recreated the universe. With a thought. Whenever in the Gospels you see Jesus using means, when you see him speaking a word, when you see him touching, when you see him making mud with his saliva and then applying it to a blind man's eyes, whatever the means, there is a reason for the means that he uses because he's teaching something. You just need to meditate on it for a moment. Don't hurry past. Pray about it. Ask the Spirit to help you understand what Jesus was trying to teach. In this case, we're meant to see how Jesus provided impeccable medical care. 
As the great physician, his bedside manner was perfect. He involved himself intimately in each and every case. Luke is explicit on this point in verse 40. He laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. We noted earlier the same thing with Simon's mother-in-law. He commanded the fever, touched her hand, he raised her by the hand, caused her to stand, strengthened her to serve. That same compassion and tenderness is evident here as well because for Jesus, it wasn't just about healing the disease. That was just a starting point. It was about knowing the people. It was about the people knowing Him. Individual attention to each and every case, but He didn't treat them like a case. He treated them like a person. He treated each person like a person with a soul like a person with an eternal need, each one ultimately needing reconciliation with God. It was laborious work, walking around to each one, sacrifice of time and energy, but He loved people. He loved them as individuals, and He loved them up close and personal. As A.B. Bruce writes, we're seeing, quote, the benevolent sympathy of Jesus. Jesus did not heal en masse, but one by one tender sympathy going out from him in each case, end quote. Very true. Not only that, but we see here the evidence of Jesus' sound judgment as he thinks through the situation. The people waited until the sun was going down to bring their sick to Jesus. They were thinking that they would be violating the Sabbath law, the law of Moses. It's a subtle, quite sad, really, point that people here would be that bound by a religious system that elevated strict adherence to rules over acts of mercy and compassion, that they've been trained to think that way. Jesus actually condemned religious leadership for perpetuating this false view of religion as something God actually approved. In Matthew 23.23, Jesus pronounced this scathing rebuke. He said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin, and you've neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Look, are all things of equal weight in Scripture? No. There are weightier matters, as our Lord says. And the weightier matters are issues of justice, mercy, and faithfulness. As a great physician, he understood that. And he exercised sound judgment. He was never worried about violating the Sabbath. (laughs) He was concerned about attending to these weightier matters of the law, like showing mercy to the hurting. As we've just seen, he'd already healed on this Sabbath twice. It's this kind of sound judgment, discerning what truly matters to God that made Jesus such a great physician. One more quick point about Jesus' impeccable care for those afflicted by disease. There is an entire section in the Holiness Code, and I'm going to read it, Leviticus 12 to Leviticus 15. Let's read it all together. I'm just kidding. I won't do that to you. But it reads, this Leviticus 12 to 15, you should read it sometime. It reads like a medical manual for the priests. One of the functions of the Old Testament priesthood was to serve like a public health organization. They were almost like medical examiners, physicians who carefully examined all kinds of diseases, determining whether the person was clean or unclean. And they'd perform the examination. They'd make a proper assessment. They'd prescribe necessary procedure for 
cleansing the person, for cleansing the physical environment. Sometimes it required even tearing down the whole house and rebuilding the wall because there was uncleanness in the wall. It's a matter of ceremonial ritual purity, yes, but also a matter of practical health and cleanliness. And all that examination, never, never would a priest defile himself by touching the afflicted individual. It was a matter of staying free from infection, but it was also a matter for him of ritual purity, that he would remain pure and able to bring his own sacrifices to the altar and also to officiate on behalf of the people as well. So he never wanted to touch any of them. Keep them at a distance. Such though is the purity and the power of our Lord's holiness that touching the sick, it didn't transfer impurity to him. It didn't transfer disease to him. Rather, his holy touch drove the impurity and disease far away. There's no way for us to know what was on his mind here as he touched people. But his lack of concern about violating Levitical law, I don't believe it was just because he knew the overpowering nature of his personal holiness. I believe instead that it was because he was compelled by the need to demonstrate tender mercy of God, and that's what mattered to him. So that's what he did. His heart was his father's heart, and he knew his father would vindicate him. So he reached out, and he touched them, every single one of them, and he healed them. He looked them right in the eye. He wanted to talk to them. He wanted to know them. And he wanted them to know him. Is that not a tender picture of our Lord's compassion? Can there be any greater encouragement to come near to him for our troubles, trials, afflictions? Is there any greater inducement for us to come and cry to him in our time of need? He's truly our merciful and faithful high priest in the service to God. We only have time left to introduce the second point in our outline. We're going to come back to this next week. This dramatic display of power. As dramatic as it is, we need to note that physical healing is not enough. We opened talking about that, but the people were healed that day, <laughs> delivered from their particular disease or affliction. They all eventually succumbed to the curse. They all died. The cure needs to go deeper than the physical, doesn't it? Sickness and disease are merely physical symptoms of a metaphysical problem, which is the problem of sin and the curse. So our second point in the outline, as you'll see, we'll just introduce this, Jesus, the healer of the metaphysical. Metaphysics, it sounds like such a fancy word, but it's really the right word to use when we talk about first causes, when we talk about fundamental principles. You see, it's in that sense that we see the fundamental problem of sin as the metaphysical issue. Sin is a fundamental principle. It is the first cause of all our other problems, spiritual and physical. Listen, this is why secular science can never and will never ultimately cure disease and sickness. Because they don't have the ability to observe what's not observable under a microscope, a sin principle. In fact, many in our modern day deny the existence of sin altogether. So if you have cut away the, the heart of the problem, you're just left to treat symptoms for the rest of your earthly existence. That's why medicines and medications and pharmaceuticals and all that stuff will not solve all these 
psychological and physical maladies that we try to treat all the time out of a pill bottle. Diseases and sicknesses are symptoms of a deeper issue. The science of the observable, the physically testable, it can't discover it. We need to get a deeper look into the issue of the sin that leads to death. And we need to look only to the one who has not only diagnosed the issue, but he also has the power to heal at the metaphysical level. Since this is beyond the physical, since it's in the realm of the metaphysical, scientific inquiry is limited. It's unable to provide solutions to point the way for us. Only one person can deal with the human condition at that level, and it's God. After highlighting this dramatic display of healing power, Luke is quick to bring our focus into the deeper spiritual nature of the problem. And he does that first by emphasizing the outcry of the demons in verse 41, and then by showing us Jesus' priority in verses 42 to 44. As much as I'd love to get into that right now, we're going to have to wait until next week to finish our outline. So if you would, just bow your heads for a moment and close your eyes and just listen before I pray. Um, these are some verses from a hymn by Henry Twells, which was inspired by this healing scene in Capernaum. And it's, the title is simply, At Even Ere the Sun Was Set. Even being a, a shortened word for evening. At evening, ere the sun was set. It was written in 1868. At even, ere the sun was set, the sick, O Lord, around thee lay. O, when diverse pains they met, O, with what joy they went away. Once more, tis eventide, and, and we, oppressed with various ills, draw near. What if thy form we cannot see? We know and feel that Thou art here. O Savior Christ, our woes dispel, for some are sick and some are sad. And some have never loved Thee well, and some have lost the love they've had. And none, O Lord, have perfect rest, for none are wholly free from sin. They who fain would serve Thee best are conscious most of wrong within. O Savior Christ, Thou too art man, Thou hast been troubled, tempted, tried, Thy kind but searching glance can scan the very wounds that shame would hide. Thy touch has still its ancient power. No word from thee can fruitless fall. Here, in this solemn evening hour, and in thy mercy, heal us all. Father, we thank you for the mercy and grace you've shown to us. Sending your Son, Jesus Christ, that we all might be healed as well. We all are afflicted and suffer from various maladies, diseases, sicknesses, weaknesses of the body. We do recognize as your people the deeper issue, the metaphysical issue of sin and the curse. We long to be healed and delivered fully. We've been delivered from sin's power and penalty because of the cross, because of the abiding presence of the Holy Spirit. We look forward one day to be delivered from sin's presence altogether. To receive a new body from you, one that is not afflicted and under the curse, that we might forever praise and glorify you. We love you and just ask for your healing power even now in this hour. 